Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. I have three brand new movies to review for you. First, however, there was a certain movie legend that died last week. He actually died on Friday, February 5th, but I didn't actually hear the news about it until the day after I did the show, so I want to pay tribute to him right now. And that person, who I is not too much of a surprise, he died because he died at the age of 91, and he is Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer, who has uh, been nominated for an Oscar only twice in his prolific, actually, excuse me, Three times he's been nominated, once he's actually won, but the first time he was nominated was actually in 2010 for the movie The Last Station, which I have to confess, I haven't actually seen. But the three times he's been nominated, and the one time he won for The Last Station, Beginners, and All the Money in the World, is basically just the tip of the iceberg in terms of great movies in which he's acted. He probably is best known to audiences both modern and, well, from 50 or 60 years ago from his breakout role, although not his first role in in movies, as Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. That was his breakout role. And even though The Sound of Music won Best Picture in 1965, He actually was not nominated for an Oscar for that role. And several other movies um, he's been in, which are of note. I'm just going... It's almost too many to name in terms of the movies and TV series in which he's acted. So I'm actually going to go for the movies that I've seen of his, which have made the biggest impact on me personally. And when I think about somebody's acting career as prolific as Christopher Plummer, even though I am a cinephile and I literally see hundreds of movies per year, I feel like I have barely seen any movies with Christopher Plummer in them. Having said that, there are movies he's done mostly of late, as in the 80s, 90s, and a little bit after that, that really had an impact on me. And there have been movies that I've reviewed of Christopher Plummer's that I've reviewed on this show uh, from the last couple of years. And probably at the end of each and every one of those reviews, I, I have said, if Christopher Plummer dies tomorrow, this will be a great note on which to end. And I said that about a few movies of his. There's one film that came out in 2015, I believe, and I'm actually trying to find it on my computer right now because I I need this kind of reference point. Here it is. Uh, 2015, three years after he won his first Academy Award for the movie Beginners, which is actually, he still holds the record for the oldest person ever to have won an Academy Award, and... I actually have not seen that movie, Beginners, but I have seen the movie Remember from 2015. 
And that was an excellent film. He plays a man who is a Holocaust survivor who has a number tattooed on his arm. And he is trying to actually find his persecutor who he believes is hiding out somewhere in the United States where he is also, uh, where he also has been a refugee for so many years. He was in remember, uh, alongside Martin Landau and that wasn't, uh, Martin Landau's last movie either, but both of them did a great job in that film. It's really too bad that remember didn't get the Oscar attention that it probably deserved. However, uh, I think that Christopher Plummer's career as an actor have, has had so many, uh, prolific roles I also remember him in a few Spike Lee movies. Uh, there was one he played uh, in Malcolm X. <sighs> Let me say that again. He's been in a few Spike Lee movies where he's had a profound impact on the movie. He played, <clears throat> excuse me, in Malcolm X, a very small role of uh, Chaplin Gill, who Malcolm Little, played by Denzel Washington, confronts when he is in prison. And even though Christopher Plummer was in that movie for only a couple of minutes, it, it was certainly a very profound, uh, supporting role. And it certainly showed how Malcolm X's mindset was formed from the opinions of others, particularly when it came to religion. There's another I think underrated movie directed by Spike Lee, uh, Spike Lee joint in which Christopher Plummer co-starred and that was the movie inside man and inside man was a very exciting movie also starring Denzel Washington and also featuring a bigger supporting role by Christopher Plummer, but one that certainly had a profound impact on the entire movie and made it more than just a bank heist film. Christopher Plummer was a bit of a villain in the movie Inside Man, and to say any more about why he was a villain would probably give away the film, but that was another later role of Christopher Plummer's that was was excellent. He also provided the voices of several cartoon characters, interestingly enough. He played the role of a pigeon, in an American tale. He played the role of an evil owl who wanted to keep the world dark in Rockadoodle. But probably a better role for him was the one of an aviator, an aging aviator, who is very similar to Charles Lindbergh, only in the movie Up. He was Charles Muntz. And he also has an army of talking dogs, which I, I thought was. The, the, the dogs are very funny, although very menacing, but Charles Muntz is one of those characters who you don't think is going to be the villain, and maybe I gave it away that he would be, but then again, he's voiced by Christopher Plummer, who usually plays a villain when he's doing some voice acting roles. But there was one other movie for which Christopher Plummer was nominated for a deserved Academy Award, and that movie was All the Money in the World. And All the Money in the World came out about four years ago in 2017. It was not Christopher Plummer's last role, but 
It was actually a role that Kevin Spacey had filmed, but then he got into all that trouble in early 2017 for sexual misconduct with several people alleging that of Kevin Spacey. And when this movie came out, All the Money in the World, I had heard about Christopher Plummer coming in with the cooperation of of co-stars Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams to refilm all the scenes that Kevin Spacey had previously filmed. And at first I thought, I'm not condoning Kevin Spacey's misconduct. What he did or what he is alleged to have done is bad. But at the same time, I didn't think that basically erasing him from a movie he had done was necessarily the right move. Granted, the crimes and misdemeanors that Kevin Spacey has committed are inexcusable, but you shouldn't erase his repertoire just because of what he did. Of course, his repertoire now has a permanent black mark, and Kevin Spacey's career may never recover. And I thought that until I actually saw All the Money in the World and I saw what an amazing job Christopher Plummer did in that role as the man who was in the early 1970s, at that time, the richest man in the world, J. Paul Getty, who owned uh, Getty Oil and started that group, or rather that, uh, that organization from the ground up. And I think probably the last movie in which I saw Christopher Plummer was the murder mystery comedy Knives Out, which had a fantastic ensemble cast. And Christopher Plummer was definitely the anchor of that cast as the celebrated murder mystery writer Harlan Thromby, who has a whole family full of greedy people who want his money, whether or not they murdered him for his money, which is not a spoiler. That's how the movie gets an gets going. I'm not going to give away, but I thought that was not Christopher Plummer's very last role, but that was probably his last big role. The other movie he made after Knives Out was the one that I haven't seen called The Last Full Measure, and that movie probably would have been released in theaters had it not been for COVID, but I haven't actually seen it. It is a war movie, and Christopher Plummer plays a supporting role in this film, which has an all-star cast, including but not limited to Sebastian Stan, Bradley Whitford, William Hurt, Linus Roach, and other such actors. So that was his last live-action role. And there is one other film for which he's providing the voice, which is filming right now and will probably soon be in post-production. And that movie is called Heroes of the Golden Masks. And that movie is a movie about a guy by the name of Charlie, who is a wisecracking homeless American orphan who is magically transported to the ancient Chinese kingdom of Sang Zingdui, where a colorful team of superheroes need his help to defend the city from a brutal conqueror. My guess is that this movie was originally a Chinese film, but it, it features such voice acting talent in the English-speaking world as Christopher Plummer, who does not provide the voice of the orphan, uh, as you might expect. Ron Perlman is also a voice, Patton Oswald, and 
several other notable voice actors who I won't get into right now. But it is amazing how actually, even though I can't name a lot of the earlier movies that Christopher Plummer has done other than The Sound of Music, it really speaks to what a work ethic this guy had, not to mention the mountain of talent he had for me to express my admiration about the films he did later in his career and how great an actor he was in these films. And it also really is a testament to those people who are approaching maybe the ages of 40 and 50 and think that their prime years are behind them. I think this guy is certainly living proof that that is not the case. Even though there are some classic films like The Sound of Music for which Arguably, Christopher Plummer may have deserved an Oscar nomination. It is great that he just kept working and never gave up and never stopped honing his craft, so much so that he was nominated for his first Oscar after having been in movies for literally at least 50 years. He was nominated for the first time in 2010 for The Last Station. He won Best supporting actor in 2012 and he became the oldest winner of a competitive Oscar in an acting category at the age of 82. And if that's not good enough for you, and I don't know why it wouldn't be, but hypothetically, if it's not good enough, when he was nominated for best actor in a supporting role for all the money in the world, the role he took over for Kevin Spacey, He became the oldest Academy Award nominee at the age of 88. So I kept saying when I reviewed movies like Remember or All the Money in the World, I did say, as I said in the beginning of this segment, that if Christopher Plummer dies tomorrow, and let's hope he doesn't, but let's say if he does, he'll at least have this as a lasting legacy. And I said this about Christopher Plummer at least three times as I've been hosting the show. So with that in mind, Christopher Plummer did not actually die of COVID. He died, I think, of natural causes, of heart failure. And he died in his home in Weston, Connecticut. And even though I would have loved to have met this guy, we still have a vast repertoire of films by which to remember him. So Christopher Plummer, Words on Film, salutes you. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a movie that just was released on HBO Max and is in movie theaters that are still open, at least the big multiplexes. That movie is Judas and the Black Messiah. This is a movie I've been looking forward to seeing for quite some time. It was written by Will Burson, Shaka King, and 
Kenneth Lucas, as well as Keith Lucas, who I assume are related. The four of them wrote the story. Will Burson and Shaka King wrote the screenplay, and Shaka King directed this film. Let me just tell you what it's about before I get into Shaka King's repertoire, because I do tend to get into some tangents about what directors and writers have directed and or written respectively before I get into the the meat of this movie. So surprisingly enough, this is not based on a book. It is the story of Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and his fateful betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill. Fred Hampton, who is a real person, or who was a real person, is played in this movie by Daniel Kaluuya, best known for his leading role in the movie Get Out, for which he was nominated deservedly for an Academy Award in 2018 for Best Actor in a Leading Role. He didn't win for that role, but this movie demonstrates that his best work is not behind him. Same thing goes for Lakeith Stanfield, who had a small but powerful supporting role in the movie Get Out. And since his role in the movie Get Out, for which he was only on screen for maybe about five minutes total, but he still had a profound impact on the movie, as well as Daniel Kaluuya's uh, leading character in the film. He has actually gone on to a number of notable supporting and starring roles. He was in a very odd film in 2018 called Sorry to Bother You, but that made the list, a lot of people's list of best films of the year. And even though I didn't think it was one of the best films of the year, I still loved it. And Lakeith Stanfield was excellent in that film. And I think in this film, the two of them, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield play very well off of each other. And these two are real people. Even though this is not based on a book or a newspaper article, or at least it's not credited for being based on either of those things, it still is a profound movie that is based on a true story. There, there is, There's probably some fudging of what exactly happened in this film, as there usually is for dramatic purposes, but... Basically, the sequence of events that happened in this film are more or less true. So Lakeith Stanfield plays the part of Bill O'Neill, who is a small-time thief, and he is actually caught in the beginning of the film in 1968, shortly after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Chicago, as he is impersonating an FBI agent and stealing a very nice car. He's caught by police, but then he's recruited by an FBI agent by the name of, excuse me, a CIA agent by the name of Roy Mitchell, who's played by Jesse Plemons, to infiltrate the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers. And we already know in this film, if we don't know already, that the CIA, very much like they felt about Martin Luther King Jr., does not like the Black Panthers, arguably even more so than Dr. Martin Luther King. J. Edgar Hoover in this movie is played by Martin Sheen in an almost unrecognizable performance. He is unrecognizable physically, but you can definitely tell it's that classic Martin Sheen voice. But 
It's been a while since Martin Sheen has played the villain in a movie, or in a TV show for that matter, and he's playing somebody who is the exact opposite of his signature character from the West Wing, President Josiah Bartlett. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of people were going back to watching the West Wing over the last four years just to know what a good president looked and sounded like. But you won't get it in this movie. So... It is very hard to discuss a film like this about the Black Panthers, where the Black Panthers are the central characters in a film, not supporting characters like they were in movies like Forrest Gump or a Black Klansman, without getting political. And I'm going to try my best not to get political here, but the Black Panthers were a very polarizing radical group, and they still are. And even people who agreed with the Black Panthers' intentions did not necessarily agree with their methods. And certainly, not all, but there were several significant Black Panthers who indeed lived by the gun and died by the gun. Whether or not they were deserving in that fate, and some of them are depicted in this movie, the movie doesn't make a judgment about that, and neither will I. I will just judge this movie on its merits in terms of its storytelling and its acting, and I will try my very, very best not to get political. But I'm just telling you, it's really hard to do. And for starters, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are both amazing in this movie. They work very well off each other, and Lakeith Stanfield, probably even more so than Daniel Kaluuya, has a great Shakespearean-like role where he is torn between the allegiance of someone he admires very much as well as his role as a reluctant FBI informant. And what becomes of Bill O'Neill years later is depicted here in this film towards the very end, documentary style. As a matter of fact, you see interview footage of Bill O'Neill as he is interviewed for the celebrated and Emmy Award-winning docuseries from PBS, Eyes on the Prize, which, if you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. But in short, Eyes on the Prize is, I think, a deservedly celebrated docuseries about the highs and the lows of the black civil rights movements from approximately the early 1950s to the late 1970s. And the Black Panthers, whether or not you agreed with them, did have a role in the civil rights movement, and that is depicted very well here. I also really liked Jesse Plemons as the CIA agent, and if I said that Bill O'Neill was an FBI informant, I apologize about that. That was a mistake on my part. He was a CIA informant who reported to Jesse Plemons' character, Roy Mitchell. I don't know if Roy Mitchell is a real person or a composite character. My guess is because you learn nothing about him or it's, it's stated that there's nothing about him in the written epilogue at the end that he is indeed a composite character, but no doubt there was somebody like Roy Mitchell in the CIA who was basically overseeing Bill O'Neill and his wiretapping. But 
regardless of whether what how you feel about the Black Panthers, whether you're for them or against them, and for whatever reason, either their methods or their intentions, you can't deny some of the powerful and sometimes even heartbreaking performances here. I think one of the breakout stars of this film, uh, not just Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, the reason I'm not calling them breakout roles is because I've seen them be great in other movies before. So they've already broken out. But one of the biggest breakout roles in this movie, I think, was that of Dominique Fishback, who plays the love interest of Fred Hampton, whose name is Deborah Johnson, who, like Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill, is a real person. And I say is, a little bit of a spoiler, because she is still alive today. And actually what becomes of her is described in very vivid and explicit detail at the very end of the film. And the relationship that Deborah Johnson has with Fred Hampton in this film is indeed heartbreaking, probably as it was in real life. And another supporting role I should note is that of Lil Rel Howery. Lil Rel Howery, as I mentioned when I was talking about the films that are coming out next week, and that was last week, so this movie right here, has a supporting role in this movie. I'm not going to say it's similar to the one he had in Get Out, but like Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, he had a very, very memorable role in the movie Get Out as Daniel Kaluuya's best friend. And I do have to say, if you were to make a top 10 list like Watch Mojo about the top 10 best, best friends in movie history, Lil Rel Howery, the, the role that he played in Get Out would probably be in the top five, probably in the top three. He was a good best friend, a great best friend, I should probably say. In this movie, like Lakeith Stanfield in Get Out, Lil Rel Howery has a supporting role, but it's much smaller. But when he appears on screen, and with what little time he does appear on screen, he does have a profound impact on the movie, the story of Bill O'Neill, and the story of Judas and the Black Messiah in general. So there is a lot to love about Judas and the Black Messiah. It is probably the second great film of 2021. And it is a movie that does not sway one way or the other in terms of um, political stance. But I have to say this is probably the first great film of director Shaka King. Shaka King is black and his, his name sounds gender ambiguous, but he's a man. And he had previously directed a number of short films and episodes of TV shows, but this is actually his sophomore effort as a feature film director. Previously, he had directed a film from 2013, which I haven't seen, which was called Newlyweeds, and that was a film that starred Amari Cheatham, Trey Harris, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is the only actor in this roster that I know. And it sounds like it's just from the description of the movie, it's a comedy, but this is this movie, Judas and the black Messiah is definitely Shaka King's breakout role as a director. And 
very much like other directors like Justin Simeon when he directed Dear White People. I'm going to say this. I cannot wait to see what Shaka King comes up with next. But Judas and the Black Messiah is a great film. It's a film that makes you think, and it is a knockout in my book. It has fantastic acting performances by just about everyone who's in the leading or supporting roles in this film. I mentioned Dominique Fishback and Lil Rel Howery most especially, but also kudos go especially to Lakeith Stanfield, who deserves to be nominated for an Oscar in this in this role for best actor in a leading role, but it will it will probably be a about a year before we determine whether or not th- this movie is eligible compared to other films that are going to come out. But rest assured, I will be rooting for Judas and the Black Messiah. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is called Zico's Journey, also known as El Camino de Hico. And this is a 2020 Mexican 2D animated film directed by Eric D. Cabello Diaz in his directorial debut. And I believe this is his feature directorial debut. It's pretty amazing when somebody comes out with any movie uh, that's released mainstream, like on Netflix, as El Camino de Hico is a Netflix original, but it is especially impressive when somebody has a directorial debut for an animated movie. I, I, I'm sure that there are movies out there, uh, big animated ones that were directed by first-time directors, but the only one I could think of was... The movie Watership Down from 1979, which was directed by Martin Rosen. Not only had Martin Rosen never directed an animated film before Watership Down, but he never directed a movie, period, before Watership Down. I think he was just an animator before that, but he did an amazing job with Watership Down, and Watership Down is in the Criterion Collection. Will El Camino de Hico be the same in my opinion, no, but it is a a decent beginning effort. So El Camino de Hico is about a girl, a dog, and her best pal, the girl's best pal, who is a guy, set who set out to save a mountain from a gold-hungry corporation. But the key lies closer to home with her sidekick pup, Hiko. Hiko is, by the way, spelled H-I-C-O, and I... I assume that um, Mexican Spanish speaking people refer to the letter X as they pronounce the letter X as the letter H like Mexico. So that's the way I'm going to pronounce the name of the dog. But even though I saw this in Spanish with English subtitles, it sounded like some characters referred to the dog as Hiko. Some of them referred to the dog as Chico, but I don't know for sure, 
But either way, I'm going to pronounce the dog's name, Hiko. So I would tell you the list of actors in this film who provide the voices, but the truth of the matter is, unless you are Mexican listening to this show and you're bilingual, chances are you probably won't know the names of a lot of these actors. I don't. So I'm just going to leave it as it is. As I was watching the film, I think in terms of his animation style, it did remind me of Dora the Explorer. And by that, I mean that the 2D animation was very similar to it. I would not say that the girl in this movie, whose name is uh, Kopi, reminded me of um, Dora at all. She didn't break the fourth wall or or tell you know the preschool audience how to pronounce certain words. But... There was that animation style that was 2D with some obvious computer animated efforts within it. And I do have to say that as I was watching this film, I was thinking to myself, first of all, it's a decent film. And I, th- I did like it for its incorporating Mexican folklore and ancient Aztec culture into the film. But I did think that in terms of taking a film that takes place in Mexico, particularly one that's designed for children, and weaving in Mexican folklore, I did think that Coco, the Disney Pixar animated film, did it better. And I do think that some people who watch this film, including uh, children, maybe even most especially children, will probably compare this unfavorably to Coco. And I do think that's too bad, but I do think that that the movie, even though it's well animated and its story is relatively decent, I think there are some moments in this film that are very predictable, particularly where you have a corporation who's digging for gold where when this these three characters, uh, a guy, a girl, and a dog, are trying to save the mountain from being dug up because they're on a mission to find something that's lost in their lives supernaturally. But I I did think that some of the folklore when mixed into this film was told rather than shown, particularly by a very obnoxious character who was a possum who was trying to be the genie in Aladdin, I think, or at least was attempted to be the comic relief side character, but tried way, way, way too hard to be funny. And I I just found myself saying as I was watching this character, good God, shut up or at least play dead, which the character actually does. And oddly enough, when this possum character plays dead, it's a little creepy to see that in an animated movie that would appeal to kids. But I can't complain too much about the movie because I I think as standard as as its plot was and as predictable as the movie was when it came to this gold-hungry corporation, I did like some elements of it. I did enjoy the animation, but it just wasn't nearly as good a film as Coco was. And I think that adults and children who see this movie will most certainly agree, especially since... Coco has a few scenes in there that will that have struck people right in the heart. 
And I am one of those people. And there weren't nearly as many poignant scenes in El Camino de Hico as there were in Coco. Again, I would compare this a little bit more to Dora the Explorer because there are some elements of of educational moments in this film, but it's not a movie that's made by the Sesame Workshop that, for example, that's aiming to be educational. I, I thought that the supernatural elements were weaved in very well when the movie got away from being a conventional taking on the big bad corporation story. But for a first-time director like Eric Cabello, it is a very good start. And for that reason, because of the animation, because of its taking its Mexican and Aztec folklore seriously, I think those are things that are memorable about the film. And I give it a checkout. Even though it's not the best-paced movie and the plot is somewhat predictable, I do think that Eric Cabello does have a rich career as a director, particularly of animated movies, ahead of him. And I would think that the movie that comes after this, that he directs, whatever that movie may be, is going to be better. But I love the fact that I could see this movie in Spanish. And I said this before when Coco came out about three or four years ago. I wished I could see that movie in Spanish, with English subtitles no less, as well. But for a movie that's made about Mexicans, by Mexicans, it's pretty good, but it has a very tough act to follow after Coco. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a documentary that is a Netflix original, and it is called Strip Down, Rise Up. It's directed by Academy Award-nominated director Michelle Oyahan, and it is a verite film following women of all ages, and (laughs) just so I don't sound like a sexist pig, I really do mean that the women in this film are are of all shapes and sizes as they embark on a pole exercising class to restore their um, pride and power as a woman. Uh, The director, Michelle O'Hayan, is a Moroccan director who had been nominated for an Oscar back in 1998 for the best feature-length documentary, Colors Straight Up, which she shared with co-director Julia Schachter. And in Strip Down, Rise Up, Michelle O'Yahan, O'Hayan, excuse me, is directing the movie herself. And there are several 
uh, women in this film who would have never thought of pole dancing, particularly for um, restoring self-confidence. But they're aided thanks to the fitness guru, Sheila Kelly, who became a fitness guru and a celebrity by coming out with a workout program called the S factor in the early aughts. And this made her famous. She appeared on the today show and late night with Conan O'Brien amongst other uh, shows to delve into her workout method, which certainly has its share of controversy. After all, these are women who are dancing on poles, but as I was watching the film and as I was watching all these women doing these amazing stunts on a pole, which I probably could never do myself because my problem is sweaty palms. And I see some of these women, you know, hanging upside down on poles and I'm thinking, my God, how do they do that? But it's not for titillation or for the approval of men. And I can respect it for that reason. As a matter of fact, the women, even though the, the name of the documentary is Strip Down, Rise Up, the women in this documentary are, are not stripping. They're, they're not taking off clothes and they're not performing for men. Actually, I would imagine that dancing on a pole for a woman would be a great exercise. For a man, probably not for several reasons. And it has nothing to do with objectification. It has more to do with women being generally smaller than men and also having a better sense of balance. But then again, this movie actually rules out rules in, excuse me, a few select men who actually take up pole dancing and have a good time with it, whatever reasons there may be. And it is really actually inspiring to see some of the women in this film start to pole dance for certain reasons. There's one woman who is still grieving the loss of her husband and adding to that grief is the fact that she found out after his death that he had been cheating on her. There's another woman whose name is Megan Gamble, whose name might not sound familiar, but she is a world-class gymnast. I don't think she ever made it to the Olympics, but she certainly had a career as a an award-winning gymnast but in a really dark turn of events she was actually one of the several hundred women who were sexually assaulted by Larry Nasser the gymnast physician at the Bella Caroli camp and when i heard her mention Larry Nasser immediately my skin began to crawl because Larry Nasser who was the subject of another documentary that was a Netflix original, is a very, very bad man. He has been rightly and justifiably sentenced to 175 years in prison, which is a very specific number, and he definitely won't live that long. But what that means is that he's in prison for the rest of his life without the possibility of parole because he sexually assaulted several women many of whom were little girls. And that is just deplorable and disgusting. But to see this movie with Megan Gamble telling her life story and also finding a new sense of purpose with pole dancing is indeed inspiring. 
There's another story that really cut close to me, or at least, you know, made me sympathize with this woman. There is another uh, pole dancing instructor separate from Sheila Kelly. I think Sheila Kelly teaches in New York, whereas this pole dance instructor named Amy Bond teaches in San Francisco. And Amy Bond is a former member of the Mormon church. And of course, when it's, it's a woman who's coming from the Mormon church. And again, I will try not to get political. We're dealing with a lot of sexual repression. In addition to the fact that the Mormon church has not been particularly well reputed in its main Latter-day Saints church, or especially on its offshoots as being particularly respectful towards women. And Amy Bond actually started out after her secession from the Mormon church as a porn star. And she still has yet to shake off some of the stigma of being a porn star. I'm not judging her for getting into that field. I'm very happy she got out of it, but I'm not judging her for having gotten into it. But I I think she deals with the controversy of her running a pole dance club and it is not to train people to train women to work in gentlemen's clubs. For example, it is purely for fitness and I respect that, but it is not without its share of controversy. As a matter of fact, there was one woman whose name I don't quite remember. I think it's Janine butterfly and that's her stage name. And that's the one on which she's credited in this documentary. Uh, she trained as a professional pole dancer, but did not tell her husband about it. And her husband eventually found out when he found pictures of her pole dancing, not provocatively or, you know, explicitly, but pole dancing nonetheless on Instagram. And did he tolerate that? He did not. Actually, according to Janine Butterfly herself, she, uh, he actually said she, he was divorcing her. And I think that if you are one of these people who is against the idea of women getting into good physical shape by pole dancing without resorting to being an exotic dancer, but you think of it as pornography, this movie will probably change your mind. It is rated R, but it is for language, not for... Uh, nudity there. I don't think that actually there is any nudity in this movie. If it hadn't been for some of the characters swearing, particularly saying the F word, this movie might've been rated PG 13, but it is an enlightening documentary. It gets my rating of a checkout. The reason I'm not giving it a knockout is because this movie already has the, the purpose of the film in its title. It's very predictable as a story to see these women take this pole dance class and become more enlightened and gain more self-esteem from it. I could see that coming. So this is a good documentary and it is very inspiring to hear some of these women's stories, but in my opinion, it's not great because I knew that's where the story was going. I also have more of an open mind and know that somebody who takes a fitness class where they dance on a pole or hang from a pole are not engaging in exotic dancing or prostitution or anything for the benefit of a male gazer's eye. But I knew that 
kind of going into it. But that's not taking away from the women's stories in this film. I just thought it was a little bit predictable for me, but I still think it is worth watching, especially if you're a woman. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for the show, I'm going to spend the rest of this um, broadcast telling you about movies that are coming out on streaming. I'm going to start the way I usually start off with Netflix and the movies that are coming out on streaming platforms, the ones to which I have time to touch from February 15th through Friday, February 19th, 2021. So on Monday, February 15th, there's a series premiere called The Crew. I'm not going to get into what that show is about, but I'm just telling you that this is a series that's going to be premiering, and if you want to check it out, all yours. On Tuesday, February 16th, there's a movie that's called, or rather an interactive special that's called Animals on the Loose, a You versus Wild movie. And the this interactive special is interesting. I think it's the second one that Netflix has done previously. They did another one with the characters from The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where you literally choose your own adventure based on a series of options that you pick. And the... The movie, or rather the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt special, was a lot of fun to watch. I was a big fan of that show. The downside is that when it's it's on your list of movies you have, you know, you, you have to finish watching. I went through so many different scenarios in the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt special, and that option didn't go away for a long time. And I, I thought, I've exercised every single option I could. I chose pretty much all the adventures by this point, but the, the special wouldn't go away until I just stopped watching it uh, previously. But if you want to check out Animals on the, U, on the Loose, a You versus Wild movie, it's going to be premiering on Netflix on Tuesday, February 16th, and it will be the first Netflix original movie of the week. On Wednesday, February 19th, there are a few series that are going to be premiering. There's a limited series called Behind Her Eyes, which I might review for this show because limited series are a fair game. Let me see if I can find uh, a, a description of Behind Her Eyes. Behind Her Eyes is a limited series, as I said. It follows Louise a single mom with a son and a part-time job in a psychiatrist's office. She begins an affair with her boss and strikes up an unlikely friendship with his wife. Interesting. The movie star, uh, yeah, the uh, limited series stars Robert Aramayo, Tom Bateman, and Tyler Howitt. Those are the people who are credited for being in this um, limited series. I don't know the name of the woman who's actually 
in this. I, I could see her face, but her her name, her actress name, is not available to me. But that limited series, Behind Her Eyes, will be premiering on Wednesday, February 17th. That is a series that I might see. I can't guarantee that I will, but if I do, I'll review it for you next week. Another uh, series that's going to be premiering on Wednesday, February 17th includes one called Hello Me and Season 9 Part 2 of Meat Eater. These are all shows that are Netflix originals. If you want to check them out, there you go. There's also a series premiering on Thursday, February 18th that's called Thus Spoke Kishibe Rohan. No idea what that's about, but if you want to check it out, it's it's premiering on Netflix on Thursday, February 18th. And finally, on Friday, February 19th, interestingly enough, there is one film, just one, that's premiering on Netflix. This one is called I Care A Lot, which sounds sarcastic when I say that. I don't know if it's meant to be a comedy. I'm looking it up right now. This is a movie that's actually starring Rosamund Pike of Gone Girl, who is a fantastic actress, and Peter Dinklage, who is an actor who will be nominated for an Academy Award before he dies. Hopefully, he will be. But I Care A Lot is a movie about a crooked legal guardian who drains the savings of her elderly wards, um, and she meets her match when a woman she tries to swindle turns out to be more than she first appears. Interesting. So Rosamund Pike, I, th- I think, is the the legal guardian who's swindling her elderly um, people for whom she cares. Eliza Gonzalez plays probably the woman who's not what she seems. The movie also stars Peter Dinklage, as I said, Diane Weist, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Alicia Witt, and Nicholas Logan, amongst other actors. This looks like a fantastic movie. It certainly has a cast of great actors, and I believe this is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. There's another series that's going to be premiering on Netflix called Tribes of Europa, and I can't tell you what that movie's going to be about, or rather what that series is going to be about, because this is a show where I review movies, not TV shows. And there are some high-quality, movie-quality shows that are out there, but because it, it, it costs so many hours to see these kinds of shows and I'm not a TV critic, I have to pass them up. But I do watch some TV series on my own time. But that's it for Netflix originals for that coming week of February 15th through February 19th. But let me just tell you what's going to be premiering on another streaming platform. I will get very quickly to Disney Plus before I sign off. And on Friday, February 19th, we have a number of films. We have one called The Book of Life, which is not a Disney film, but it will be premiering on Disney Plus on Friday, February 19th. And that is an excellent animated film. Uh, Again, it pales in comparison to Coco, but it also deals with um, Mexican folklore and El Dia de los Muertos. But it is, um, it's going to be on Netflix, uh, excuse me, on Disney Plus and Cheaper by the Dozen and Cheaper by the Dozen 2 from 2003 and 2005, respectively, starring Steve Martin and Bonnie Hunt will also be premiering on Disney Plus, but they are not Disney Plus originals. 
There's one Disney Plus original that's going to be premiering on Disney Plus on Friday, February 19th, and that movie is called Flora and Ulysses. And that movie is a live-action film, and it is a movie about a young girl and a squirrel with superpowers. The movie stars Matilda Lawler. It has John Kasser as the voice of the squirrel, and Allison Hannigan has a supporting role, I think probably as the girl's mother, because Allison Hannigan is that age where she could have a child by now. But Flora and Ulysses is a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.